Thank you for joining our Transform 365 podcast, a discipleship and teaching ministry of SWCC. We pray this teaching helps you to grow in your journey with Christ. We have some great resources available for you on Transform365.com webpage. Feel free to download discipleship materials, small group teaching, as well as peruse our training workshops. Also take time to visit www.swcc.org for videos, teaching, and more. We thank you for listening and your support, and we would love to hear from you. So use our contact page and drop us a line. Now, for our podcast teaching. Worth isn't what you know, what you own, but who you know. There is a story of a man that he was asked by the President of the United States to take the President's motor car, his limo, and go pick up the Pope. It was one of the first times the Pope had ever come to the United States. So he picked up the Pope, and the Pope looked at him and said, You know, I have never driven a vehicle such as this, a beautiful American vehicle. So the Pope gave this exchange of how he really wanted to drive the president's limo. Well, the, the driver was like, I, I don't know, it could cost me my job, it could cost me my license. Finally, after some time, and the Pope promising that he was going to get him an in of all the blessings of the world, the man agreed to sit in the back and let the Pope drive to the White House. Well, of course, the Pope, he had never really had any formal training. He always was driving in the Pope-mobile. He was getting taken to and fro. And so he was driving with a lead foot and not really knowing what the laws were. So he passed a state trooper. The state trooper said, man, I got to pull this guy over. He was going way too fast. He pulled over, knocked on the window, license and registration. And as the Pope took out his little Pope card, he handed it over to him. The man was shocked. The Pope is driving. So, so as the story continues, the, the man was just so shocked. The officer, he said, well, let me, let me call this in. And he walked to the back towards the window uh, where the uh, driver was sitting. And he's talking to his captain. He's like, hey, captain, I got a weird situation here. Um, and the limo driver could hear the conversation going back and forth and the commander was like, well, what's going on? He goes, well, I just pulled over the president's motor car, his limo, because uh, the driver was going 105 miles per hour and uh, swerving in and out of traffic. Well, he said, well, you need to bring in that driver and arrest him. He goes, I don't think we should do that, sir. Well, why not? Well, because this person is very, very special, sir. Well, how do you know he's special? Well. Number one, sir, he is in the president's motor car. He is obviously really important. He goes, it doesn't matter if he's in the president's motor car. You need to bring this man in. He goes, yes, but I didn't finish, sir. Well, what is it then? He said, well, the man is being driven by the Pope. <laughs> so it's not really uh, who you uh, are here on earth. Uh, this was just a limo driver. It doesn't matter what you have in your bank account. It's all of who you know. Now, that is a story in jest, obviously. Um, but for us, it's about who we know. 
It's about knowing Jesus and growing in Jesus, being his disciple, and not just a believer who has their uh, assurance and insurance in Jesus Christ to go to heaven. We want to be learners of his. That's what the word disciple means, matheteo. It's literally to be a learner. We're saying that we are devoted to Jesus as our rabbi, as our teacher, as our master. The Sermon on the Mount opens with the Beatitudes, which is where we're going to be today. We are on uh, a series called On a Mountainside, and I'm so excited about this because in it, we're going to look at so much that has to do with us uh, going from believer to follower disciple. And so on the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, there are eight statements, each beginning with the same word, blessed. Now, this word affirms a state of blessing that already exists because Jesus says, blessed are those. It's something you already own. Each of us, each of these Beatitudes declares that a group of people usually regarded as afflicted are actually blessed. I mean, think about that. He says, blessed are those who... Uh, are poor. I mean, that, that's an affliction. But Jesus turns it into something beautiful, a blessing. But not just a blessing. You see, a lot of people, they get that idea of blessed, and they think that it's having to do with a earthly type of blessing, or what we define as blessing. But Jesus doesn't use that definition. In fact, the very word, it literally means content. Blessed is really should be content are those. Those blessed don't have anything else to have to strive for or to attain because they have God's blessing. Jesus simply declares that we have this blessing in abundance and fullness. That's why it starts with how blessed we are because of this grace we've received. They're not, by the way, conditions of salvation. It's not that God has to see these attitudes in you in order for you to receive heaven or anything like that. These are God's guides to his disciples' attitude in him. Having full contentment in our character and our attitude. If you have your Bibles, open up to Philippians chapter 4 real quick in verse 12. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, and I'm just going to summarize verse 12 and 13. Paul says this is his contentment. Okay, He says, look, I, I know how to get along in hard times, in good times, in times of starving, in times of an abundance of food. I know how to have riches. I know how to go without riches. He says, but this I do know that my satisfaction is in Christ Jesus. Verse 13, he can get along in every situation because of Christ who gives him strength. Right there is a beatitude of knowing how to be content in every circumstance because you're filled with Jesus Christ. You're following him, amen? In 111 verses, 111 verses, 111, 
Jesus delivered what is labeled by some people as the kingdom manifesto. This is God's way of working in his kingdom. From chapters 5 to 7, Jesus begins with the Beatitudes. Jesus introduces a new radical philosophy of how he is operating and how God's heaven operates and how he wants his kingdom when he brings it to earth to operate. Jesus preached about how we have this loving God that reaches out not to the prim and the prompt and those that are holy, but he reaches to the whosoevers in this world, not just to the religious professionals. Faith was no longer a legalistic code. Faith was nothing anymore that had to do with the shroud of holiness separating you from God. It's now a loving covenant between God to man through Jesus Christ. The concepts declared in the Beatitudes still stand so strong because we are called to be his followers, his disciples. In fact, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, uh, 18, 19 and 20, excuse me. It doesn't say that God wants us to go and make converts of the entire world. No, Jesus says, I want you to go and make more disciples, people committed to following me. So really what we have here is the manifesto of what he wants to see in us. What he wants to see in the people that we are growing with a kingdom mentality. Followers that are committed to his teaching. The Beatitudes describe the character of God's kingdom. The rules for the rulers of God's kingdom. Uh, but they're not conditions, like I said, for salvation. It says that he sat down and he spoke to who in verse five, um, chapter five, verse one. If you have your Bibles open, turn to Matthew five, verse one. It says that when Jesus got to the top of the mount, he sat down and he began to talk to his disciples. And he was saying to them, his followers, his disciples, those that he had committed to his teaching and, and were committed to him as rabbi and called him Lord and Master. Those that he had called and said in, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Hey, follow me. Follow me as your rabbi. Follow me as your teacher. Make that commitment. Those he had said to love him above all others in Luke 14, 26, he says, hey, look, I want you to, to love me above everybody. In fact, the amount that you love me needs to make the love you had toward other people seem like you don't like them. In fact, you got to disregard your love for others and that attachment even to yourself and love me above all other things. Those people, the men that he said would lose their life, lose their wealth, lose their comfort, and have no home in Luke chapter 9. To them, he said, this is what commitment is for. This is what your character needs to be about. You're working for a kingdom. And let me tell you your attitude about this kingdom and how it affects the kingdom. How your attitude here on earth will be carried into the way you interact in the kingdom. So let's go ahead and go to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to read verses 1 through 3 to start. 
It says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he had sat down, his disciples, he came to them. And he opened his mouth and he began to teach them. The them is the disciples, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. Well, let's start off with that word, poor in spirit. I mean, that doesn't sound too good, to be poor in spirit. Uh, it, that you feel that you have no moral re riches is kind of what it's saying. You feel that you need spiritual life and that you feel spiritual empty. And that's kind of what it's talking about. The word poor there literally means that you have been reduced to the point of being a beggar. You're poor. I mean, just the other day I drove by uh, on Whole Foods. There was a man on the side of the road with a sign wearing a mask that said, have no job, can't get a job, all I want is some food. Well, I started scrambling for whatever I could, and uh, there, inside of my bag there, a Whole Foods bag was a bag of chips. I had no change, I just went ahead and I handed that to him. But he was reduced to the point of having to depend on people's charity as a beggar. And that's the same idea that Jesus gives here. But he's not saying you're having to rely on people for the charity of housing, charity of food, charity of any of those things. He says, blessed are the poor, okay? Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that's where Jesus really brings in this teaching. Blessed are the poor in spirit, meaning you're totally dependent on someone else for your spiritual well-being. You're totally dependent on the filling from somebody else for your spiritual well-being. And what Jesus is saying is to his disciples, his learners of him, blessed are those who are depending on me spiritually for the filling they need in this spiritual life. If we turn this around, he's also saying that there's a curse really and feeling that you've arrived to perfection and you don't need him that there's an emptiness because you are relationally saying i don't need you to fill me up because i am all sufficient you see when god puts you in situation that you have no power kind of like right now everybody's stuck at home people losing their jobs, people getting sick. And you realize I can't fix this. He's doing you a favor because he's making a way for you to realize that you need him, that you're poor to fix it. And you need his interaction and divine intervention. And if you find yourself in this place, you'll know that you're poor in spirit when thanksgiving replaces your complaining. Because it said, blessed. You feel content in knowing that you've handed it all over to him. Jesus is declaring that it is a blessing 
to recognize our need to be filled by God above. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, and, the, and it saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, what is wrong with him? Why is Jesus doing this? Mark chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, they come up and, and they're making a, a ruckus and they're like, you know what? Here we are, we're the spiritual leaders, we're the heads, we understand, we're, we're, we're the Pharisees. In fact, we're rabbis ourselves. Why is your rabbi not dining with us? But in fact, it goes the other way. It says, why is he eating with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners? And Jesus hearing this, verse 17, he, he answers them, the Pharisees. And he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And you see, in sharp contrast in this, in the beauty of the marriage of this passage, is that the poor of spirit realize the need to be spiritually healthy. And they realize that only God above can satisfy that need. That only through Jesus Christ can they realize true health spiritually. Those who feel they are sinful or morally sick, they cry out for salvation because they're poor spiritually. But the ones that think that they have arrived, they're not concerned about the kingdom. Those who are self-righteous or morally confident, they think they're rich. Jesus saying, hey, look, the ones that get my kingdom, the ones that inherit, are the ones that realize their need in me. The ones that are growing in me. The ones that realize the sufficiency that only comes through Jesus Christ. And this makes sense because Jesus makes it that the first attitude of a Christian, of a, of a disciple, the first attitude of those that follow Jesus is being spiritually poor, reduced to begging to him. It's the first beatitude to actually begin this life as a disciple is to realize that you need to depend on him and him alone. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus says that if you want to be great in his kingdom, in his kingdom, not in heaven, in his kingdom that he's bringing here on earth, you need to be servant of all. How do we know that he's talking about uh, the earthly kingdom? Well, because the disciples, they're all excited. Jesus had just done the triumphal entry, which we, we celebrated not too long ago with Palm Sunday. And Jesus, you know, the people ran out with the palm branches, took off their jackets, and they're going out and they're singing Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is he who will sit on the throne of David. And so the people think, hey, guess what? We are getting rid of the Romans. There's no more Romans. There's no more Herod. There's no more Greeks. There's no more people to overtake us because we have Messiah King Jesus. So the disciples start bickering and they're like, okay, well, who's going to be better than who? Who's going to be, you know, co-reigning with Jesus? And in fact, James and John, they send their mom to talk to Jesus. They send their mom to speak to Jesus. 
and and she asks them, oh, Jesus, can you have my son sit at your right and left in your kingdom? God says, hey, Jesus says, hey, that's not up for me to decide. That's up for God above to decide. And he said to all of them as they're bickering over who's going to be great and who's going to have what position, he says, if you want to be great in my kingdom, then you need to serve. The least shall be the greatest. You see, Jesus' talks uh, uh, about heaven and eternal life, uh, and he talks so freely and, and constantly about the kingdom as well. But you see, heaven, when he speaks of heaven, he's tying it to eternal life. When he speaks of kingdom, he's speaking of the reign that will take place. E eternal life is heavenly forever. Uh, John 6, 47 lets us know that the moment we believe in Jesus is the moment we have eternal life, is the moment that we have that promise of eternity in him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has, current, has eternal life. And he speaks of the earthly kingdom in future tense. He's saying it's going to be taking place. And it's for those that have decided to sit with me as disciples, studying my word and living by it. And how do we know that? Well, 2 Timothy 2.12 lets us know that uh, it's all about those who have committed their life to living for him as disciples. That's what the kingdom is for. It's for those who are living for him. Revelation 20 verse 6 says that those who are committed to him, they will reign with him. It's, it's that commitment of following the way of the rabbi, following the way of the master, following Jesus. And not everybody that believes does that. Um, and we know that. Not everybody that believes has the chance to even do that. The, the thief on the cross, he, he looked at Jesus with longing in his eyes. He said, you know, Jesus, when you go into your kingdom, please remember me. Jesus answered him back, yeah, today you'll be with me in heaven. The thief didn't have a chance to be a disciple of Jesus, to be a learner. But he did have the chance to believe on Jesus Christ. Listen to what Matthew chapter 7 says. If you if you're still following along, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 24. Verses 21 to 24, Matthew chapter 7. It says this Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name perform miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears my words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who has built his house upon the rock. You see, it says here, kingdom of heaven. And, and I want you to get this straight. Kingdom of heaven literally just means the kingdom that is coming from heaven. And Jesus is reigning in that kingdom that will come from heaven. It's not by human hands. It's not a kingdom that can be shaken. It's not Roman. It's not Greek. It's not Herod's kingdom. It's God's kingdom that Jesus will sit 
on God's throne. Not everyone, he says, that has called me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because verse 24 says they were not following his word. Listen, Jesus says, you may call me Lord, but that doesn't mean that you're listening to my words. Lord, and I want you to get this straight, Lord, saying Lord and calling Jesus your Lord is a decision to let him rule your life. To call Jesus Lord is making the decision to let Jesus rule your life. I want to give you an example. The Pharisees occasionally called Jesus Rabbi, Teacher, and Lord. Judas and the rest of the disciples called Jesus Master, Teacher, Rabbi, and Lord. But did all of them submit their will to Jesus's? Well, it's obviously that they didn't. It's obvious that the Pharisees were saying it tongue-in-cheek and not really meaning it. And, and Judas, once Jesus didn't do and fit into the mold he wanted as a kingdom right there and right then, Judas betrayed Jesus. So none of them did what he said and showed. Jesus said, hey, look, if you call me master and teacher and rabbi, if you call me Lord, then you need to do what I say. Matthew, John chapter 13, it says in verses 13 to 15, Jesus, he, he wraps, you know, around his waist and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. This is what happened on Maundy Thursday. And, and he comes to them and he says, hey, look, you call me teacher and Lord. You call me rabbi. You call me master. If I then have done this to you, then if you really want to follow me, you do what I have done. If you truly call me Lord, then do what your Lord says to do. And that's why in Matthew 7, 21 to 24, he says, look, everybody that calls me Lord, it doesn't mean they actually have made the decision to give me their life. Just because you say it doesn't mean you believe it, doesn't mean you brought it down 18 inches to your heart to live it. This passage is a kingdom passage, just like the Beatitudes are, are attitudes of disciples looking towards that heavenly kingdom that's coming down here to earth. It's not a salvation passage either. It's not saying, hey, look, if you want to have eternity, then you need to call me Lord. No, 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 that's not what it's saying at all. He's saying, look, not everybody that has called me Lord is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Everybody that believes in me as Savior, John 6, 47, will have eternal life, but not everybody makes the commitment to call me Lord. Notice Jesus even says, hey, look, the Father in heaven, he's sitting there, and he wants what I want, and I'm bringing the heavenly kingdom down here. You know, this is part of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where it says that we have uh, heaven, which is eternally free. It's a free gift. It's a free gift of God to all who believe. But reigning with him 
and the reward of living for him and ruling with him in the kingdom, even though salvation is free, reigning with Jesus comes with a cost. Salvation and, and heaven is a free gift. Eternal life is a free gift. It was paid for by Jesus' blood. But he says, discipleship is what I want for you to inherit the kingdom of God. So follow me. It's the cost of following. This is why we pray Matthew 6.10. You know, uh, the, the Lord's Prayer is actually the disciples' prayer. It's for us who want to follow, want to have that commitment towards Jesus to say, Our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When your kingdom gets here, Lord, let me be living your will on earth as it's been in heaven. Do you hear that? God, when you bring Jesus' kingdom here for him to rule and reign, Lord, let me be living as if you are Lord of my life. We're praying the millennial kingdom, brothers and sisters. In Matthew 5, going back to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3 again, we need to put this in context. Who is he talking to? Well, it says that he came to his disciples and he sat down with them. And then he began to teach them, his disciples. So he's talking to the followers. And he says, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who realize their contentment and filling and their fulfillment is in Jesus. For theirs is the kingdom because they are going to get, they're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Each time we look at the Beatitudes, it's something beautiful in our character because God's kingdom is made for people that act like this that have these attributes in life. God's kingdom that he's going to bring here to earth. The reigning with Jesus is made for those who have an attitude such as this. God will make you happy and content or blessed because you are depending on him for spiritual richness and blessing for his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 10, Verses 22 to 25. Matthew chapter 10, verses 22 to 25. It says this, You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, until he returns, in other words, to bring his kingdom. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. The attitude that we're to have is to become like Jesus. He says, hey, look, when you're discipled by someone, it's to become like that someone, to have their thinking, have their actions, and to live like them. And he's saying, and that's the way it is for him. Remember, they called him rabbi. 
They were living by what he interpreted of the law. And he said, hey, look, the law is love. Love God and love others. And he said, this is my interpretation of the law. And he says, now I call you brothers. I call you friends. And now I'm going to lay down my life because I love you. You see, in other words, we need to have the attitude of Jesus. We need to take on his teaching and his way to become more like the good teacher who Philippians 2, 7 through 11 says he emptied himself. He humbled himself. Why? To die on a cross for us. And that God raised him up. Think on that just for a second. The beauty of those words. Paul says, have this attitude in the same way Jesus had his attitude, which was kingdom to be raised up by God. In other words, when we come to God, we must realize our state and that we are empty without Jesus Christ, that we are spiritually impoverished without his filling. We must not be self-satisfied or proud in our hearts thinking that we have already arrived or just because we read books or if we've memorized scripture or any of those things that we don't need him anymore. Or just because we trusted him that we shouldn't grow anymore or sit at the feet of Jesus. In fact, James chapter 4 verse 6 says that God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Do you want to be raised up? Then realize you need Him. Do you want to be lifted up? Then realize that you need Him. In fact, continuing on in James chapter 4, it goes on into verse 7 through 10. It says, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he goes on. And humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will lift you up. When we drop ourselves to him, let his attitude in you be what God exalts because you are poor in spirit, but rich in Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a disciple. Let me ask you, have you made the decision to live for his kingdom and his righteousness? As Matthew chapter 6 lets us know, living for his kingdom, the one to come to this earth as it is in heaven. Maybe you've trusted Jesus for your eternal life, and that is fantastic. And I praise God that you made that decision. In fact, Luke lets us know that the heaven's angels, they erupt in a party that you made the decision to trust Jesus as your Savior. But let me ask you, have you made the decision to be a learner of Jesus? To sit at the feet of the master rabbi? To make him Lord? Because there's one point in your life where you make Jesus the savior of your life. You trust him for all eternity. And there's another point where you say, Jesus, I give you my life. I make you Lord. 
It's not a requirement for salvation, but it is a requirement to learn from Him and grow in Him. It's part of starting that building block of building your house on the rock and calling Him Lord, Lord, and building yourself in the kingdom of God. There is a reason why Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, he says, Hey, look, I, I've run my race. There's a reason why he calls it a race. And he says, but hey, look, I run my race to win. And he says, you should run your race to win. Listen, eternal life is the race we're all running. We're all running towards eternal life. We're all running in that when you believe Jesus is your Savior. You're all entered into that race. But he says, you know what? A disciple runs to win a prize, to reign and rule with Jesus Christ. That is the greatest gift I could receive. We've been given the gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. So run in such a way that you receive the crown of righteousness, which comes from Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, if you turn there with me, and I want to part with these words, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29, it says this, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. When we give our life back to Jesus, He consumes us. And we inherit that kingdom that cannot be shaken. Make the decision to be a disciple of Jesus. Make a decision to trust Him, not just with your eternal life, but with your earthly life in the here and the now as well. Thank you for joining the Transform 365 podcast, a ministry dedicated to helping you grow in relationship to Christ. If you want to know more, find us at transform365.com or on our church website, www.swcc.org, located in Miami, Florida. Until next time, remember, the only work in grace is to let grace work in you. God bless.